Welcome to Earful of Dirt, the Major League Rugby podcast. Featuring Aaron Castro in Arizona, Liam Poach in Boston, and Craig Gridelli in New York City. For those of you new to the podcast, each week the guys share news, views, and abuse from Major League Rugby, the United States Professional Rugby Union, along with information on the USA national team. With all that said, let's get on with the show. We're live. We were having a quick pre-production meeting um, about this thing. What is this thing, Craig? What is uh, going well, on? USA Rugby, our, our dear home uh, union parent has filed, or at least has announced they're going to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy, um, which is a legal process to reorganize their balance sheet and capital structure with the hope of emerging once again intact as a healthy uh, financially sound and viable organization. Yeah. So, I mean, not, not to give you guys too much background, but to sort of say, Hey, how can a nonprofit file for chapter 11? Well, it is possible. Uh, I haven't, we haven't in the sports side of things. I don't think we've seen a full successful, uh, chapter 11, um, filing to full reorganization. Cause the other one that is out there right now amongst sports NGBs is USA Gymnastics. USA Gymnastics, once you say in the summer of 2018, was not decertified, but it was taken over by uh, the USOPC, now the USOPC, United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Uh, and they basically, and the USOPC in theory could do that same thing to USA Rugby if they wanted to, but, uh, well, we don't have a sex scandal um, going on. So, yeah, uh, we just can't. Count that we know of. That we know of. We just can't count our money. Uh, but so the USOP, the USA Gymnastics, since that takeover and replacement of directors and executives, has um, you know a lot of liabilities. Uh, roughly based on court court cases and results, they owe to plaintiffs something around like between three hundred fifty and four million dollars, uh, and their insurance company has been trying to get a settlement. Um, like part of going into chapter 11 was to consolidate all of that. And, you know, so that they could move forward uh, as an organization and they, that process it's now. So they're, they're a year and a half into that process in uh, January. They, I think it was the second offer, offered $250 million. Well, the insurance company and USA Gymnastics offered $250 million in settlement to all of their plaintiffs uh, as part of this bankruptcy proceeding. And so far, those negotiations are ongoing, stemming from the Larry Nasser scandal slash that dude needs to be in jail for the rest of his life. Uh, but... Um, so that that's sort of where we're at with sports NGBs in filing for Chapter Eleven, um, and you you may ask like what are the assets that an NGB has? Uh, well, we'll get into that. But first, let's let's sort of dig into the process. Craig is a a financial advisor for major companies when they when they do big financial moves. So he has financial experience. Yeah, thank you. Not not to go too much into the resume. We don't normally talk uh, outside of rugby professional life around here, but uh, I spent my first few years after my uh, master's degree, I spent in corporate restructuring specifically 
uh, worked, you know, my firm worked on a lot of, you know, big headline bankruptcies like the city of Detroit, Puerto Rico. Um, so yeah, I, I've personally advised, I don't know, probably five or six companies through chapter 11. So, uh, you know, I, I'm fairly familiar with the subject matter. So why don't I, my wife sometimes accuses me of Craig explaining things to people. So I'm going to try to avoid, you know, overly, yeah, overly patronizing explanation, but I realize bankruptcy is not something that most people are familiar with. So to give you a, a very brief overview, the idea of bankruptcy is that um, in a case where a company has taken out certain liabilities, whether it be paying their employees or borrowing money, or they have a lawsuit pending or any, anything that's a liability they may have to pay. And all of a sudden they don't have the cash to pay it. You run into a problem because companies are complex structures of contractual relationships and it's all fine when everything's humming and going great. But when you can't pay one of your obligations, it becomes a very complex issue of who should get what money when, and the, you know, the government and the law of the United States has established a, a procedure where you go into bankruptcy, it freezes all of those claims. Everything that's pending against the company is frozen immediately. And a court will now oversee the resolution of all these contractual claims. So there's, you know, you hear chapter 11, that's because there's a number of types of bankruptcy. Chapter 11 in particular is the type of bankruptcy which is intended for a reorganization meaning the company is going to emerge on the other side of this as a healthy entity. The other alternative you might have seen here is a chapter seven, which is a liquidation. They say, look, there's no way this company can survive. We're just going to take up all the value they have, split it up amongst their creditors in the way that is most appropriate based on their contractual seniority. And that'll be the end of the organization. That was a real possibility. And the key really the key difference when it comes down to what makes a chapter 11 possible versus a chapter seven is a belief. Someone has to believe in the organization enough to finance it, to both pay for its chapter 11, which is expensive when you add up the legal fees and the financial fees and everything else that goes into a chapter 11, um, finance both that case itself. And um, in order to exit chapter 11, you have to have, Typically, they consider a two-year period of financial uh, viability. You have, you have to prove to the court that whatever you've done in Chapter 11, you're going to have enough cash to last at least another two years, um, or else they won't let you go through Chapter 11. Even if you file Chapter 11, if you can't prove that viability, you can't meet the judge's viability test, he'll just convert you, he or she will just convert you into a Chapter 7, and you'll liquidate. Um and, and one last thing on chapter 11 is, as Aaron you know, intimated with the, um, the gymnastics uh, chapter 11, it's a, it brings all the claims together from all of your various creditors. So in USA Rugby's case, that would be the ongoing lawsuit with UWS. It would be its bank loans would be World Rugby. Uh, it would be people, you know, their employees that they have to pay if they have, you know, if they have accrued salary that hasn't been paid, they'll be creditors. Vendors that they haven't paid will be creditors. So every claim against the company is brought to one place and resolved before the judge. And the judge will ensure that everything is resolved fairly. Uh, there could be nothing, you know, in the court's mind, they'll make sure nothing predatory is going on. No one's rights are being violated. Everyone will have a seat at the table. Everyone's voice will be heard in accordance with the size and importance and seniority of their claim. Yeah, this, this, if we look at, like, USA Rugby does have income streams, um, like, every NGB out there, 
yeah, especially in a small sports, we are between a sort of a rock and a hard place because we're not like USA Soccer. USA Soccer has over 4 million senior members, and they do pay membership fees. I think it's USA Soccer's membership fees is like $20 a year for senior club members. Uh, then USA Soccer, uh, I guess, through license or agreement, uh, does not administer the youth game. You have various... Uh, organizations that pay a fee to USA Soccer to have that authority to to administer the youth game. One of those is USA Club Rugby, or not USA Club Rugby, but USA Club Soccer, which is for U18 and below. That is your like travel organizations out there that that go to different states and tournaments and all that stuff. And then you have like organizations like ASO, American Youth Soccer Organization. And here's the difference between uh, like member fees for children in ASO is like $15, but guess how many kids play soccer in ASO? Guess what their revenue is? They Their revenue is $70 million a year. So their revenue is, I guess last year, USA Rugby had $10 million. So their revenue is seven, 7X seven on a bad year, better than USA Rugby's, or 5X, I mean 5X for USA Rugby being on a bad year, $10 million usually between 14 and $16 million has been the average the past couple of years. Um, or so, or five X on a good year for, for USA rugby. So that shows you the difference in economics, right? So you have, you have member fees, which come in and what those member fees will look like. We don't know because things are being, people have been trying to plan for reorganization for a while. And we've sort of been attempting to avoid a chapter seven or a chapter 11, uh, obviously, everyone that's working on the board and World Rugby and the USOPC, they're the the best uh, case scenario is to completely avoid this. But I, I think they've come up with the workout plan from them is that a USOPC can't finance this because they're they're in the midst of dealing with USA Swimming and USA Gymnastics and this whole especially now with the canceled Olympics, they don't have, they're not going to have the, the income from NBC or payouts from winning stuff to, to effectively finance this. So then we're back into world rugby. But if you, so if you, we look at member fees as being one that previously had been the highest portion of the revenue for USA rugby, then you go into grants, which uh, depending on the cycle, uh, you only had World Rugby grants, and then as the Olympic cycle built up, you had USO, USOPC grants, which were funded uh, only for the Sevens program uh, when it came to high performance. Uh, and then you had sponsorship, uh, which uh, I think combined right now, uh, Ernst & Young's sponsorship is about a million and a half a year in cash, plus something in, in value in kind because we, we signed a deal that would uh, give, I guess, their planning um, power because they do strategic plans for companies, but I don't think their strategic plan was so far so good, obviously, because we didn't roll out and change things fast enough. I don't know. I, I just look at uh, hiring consultants for strategic plans, especially when they aren't members of your own organization and don't know the sport, aren't really going to understand with what needs to effectively take place. That's my personal opinion, but that was a service that was part of the total values. That's also, then you have us Marines, 
that Aura sponsor, I think that was about $400,000 a year. Uh, Blast Wines. And then uh, UL Dialogue, which does a lot of lab stuff. And those were both around $250,000 a year. So uh, like two and a quarter million dollars in sponsorship revenue incoming. Um, what basically occurs to like uh, roughly $10 million a year, depending on what's going on um, with events and, and whatnot. Um Obviously, uh, US, we had Rugby World Cup 7s here, and that, that is why we're here. Um, the decision to form RIM uh, is, is why we're here, and that uh, Rugby International Marketing uh, was a could I, I don't know if it was a good, a good or novel idea. I think when I look back at, at what we did is we formed our own company and then sold, made that company give us a license fee and the the entire idea is if the people who are running that sold a shit ton of sponsorship we would make a lot of money and if they were really good at events we would make a lot of money but if anyone who's watched has seen it was basically the same people who did events at usa rugby worked under rip it was basically the same people who were selling sponsorship then just worked under rip and they didn't sell good sponsorship. Like we did not increase the value of the brand when instead at the time they could have sold that. Well, they could have through agreement, a license agreement given say AEG or IMG the entire thing, which is sponsorship and events. And they probably could have had as much revenue, but significantly less risk. Yeah. But um, so that that's where we're here. Is this for? I think Rim ends up being with our debt to. So we let's to break this out a little bit. Is we have around uh, two and a half million dollars in debt to Chase Bank, um, million uh, around five hundred thousand dollars in debt in credit cards. Uh, I think might be U.S. Bank, uh, but that, that's the number. So that's around $3 million and about $2 million in debt to World Rugby. Uh, who will be financing this? Right now, the plan is World Rugby is going to be financing um, the work, the Chapter 11 and workout and then finance packages that will support uh, national teams through this process. Uh, the rudimentary operational plan is uh, they are stripping down the, the national office through this process. What so that gets into, um, you know, what would happen in chapter seven on the sports side of the house? Because yeah. so financially, what what you talked about liquidation, but what is if you can go into the straight details of it? Just the company yeah. goes away. Yeah. So let me let me talk about that for a second. So as Aaron mentioned, World Rugby is has or the press was to say that World Rugby is going to finance. Um, this bankruptcy and what that means, you know, I haven't seen any official, but in all likelihood, what that means is they're going to be what's called the dip lender, uh, debtor in possession lender. Now, the idea of a dip lender is um, they go into court uh, and the, the debtor, in this case, USA Rugby, is going to have to provide a budget to their lender and to the court saying, look, this is the expenses we're going to have for the next, usually it's 13 weeks, the next 13 weeks. And they're going to have to show that this dip loan is enough 
to finance those expenses. And the judge is going to have to be convinced. And people may object and argue that it's not enough. And ultimately, for the dip loan to be placed, a judge is going to have to hear all the evidence and say, okay, I'm comfortable that this is a, you know, a loan on, made on fair terms, the best terms the company can get, and it's going to be enough to finance this process. If that happens, the chapter 11 will proceed and we'll talk about what that means. Now, if that doesn't happen, you know, if for some reason the, the judge is not convinced that it's enough and World Rugby is not willing to put up any more and there's no one else out there willing to put up any more, then what the judge is going to say is, look, you guys are administratively insolvent. You don't have enough money to even finance a chapter 11 and I'm going to convert this to a chapter seven. And what a chapter seven means is, to go into the details, is essentially all of the, you know, they're going to line up the creditors by seniority. So it's like, okay, Chase Bank is probably their most senior creditor. That's you typically your lending banks are your most senior creditor. So it's okay. First is Chase Bank's two and a half million. Then your credit, then you have World Rugby's two million. Then your credit card debt. Then you have your, your contingent liabilities for your lawsuits. Then you have your vendors you haven't paid or whatever the, the order is. It's determined by the, the contractual seniority of every single claim, which the judge will opine on. They're going to stack them up in order and they're going to start selling each asset that USA Rugby has. And every dollar from that sale is going to go first to the first creditor. So once Chase Bank is paid off and they'll start paying the second creditor. And they'll go like that until they've sold every asset that, that USA Rugby has to whoever will buy it at whatever price they'll buy it for. And at the end, all the assets that once belonged to USA Rugby will be scattered to the wind to whoever has bought them. And the creditors will get as much money as you get from that process. And when the money runs out, the creditors start getting zeros. So if you sold every asset, let's say, for example, in USA Rugby for $2 million, then uh, the banks would get the, that $2 million, they'd lose 500000 and every other creditor would get a zero, for example. Um, I don't know that's the number, but that, that's just hypothetically how it would work. So, so on the sports side, and the reason why I have a lot of um, indignation for a lot of the things that we're seeing, we're reading out there of, you know, burn it to the ground. Um, you know, we're leaving. Screw this. We're going to do our own thing. And, and I think on the sports law side of the house, you could end up with the same result as chapter seven. And what would that be? It's like in chapter seven, when this thing liquidates and dissolves, you would be decertified by both World Rugby and USOPC because there would be no organization that would exist, right? And also, like if all of these the, the subunits that are part of the governance structure that exists in USA rugby leave, like say youth rugby sort of form their own thing, because right now there are 50 plus entities in, in USA rugby that govern youth rugby locally. Uh, like um, California has two NorCal and SoCal youth rugby football unions. Okay. Uh, so, and then, then you have the GUs, which are talking about, hey, we're going to form this own thing. And like, okay, I, I understand this, but from the, if all of those organizations leave and USA Rugby just has national teams and you don't come up to some type of government, come up with some type of governance agreement where you still submit to USA Rugby as the governing body but you 
want full administrative power over your portion of the game, then that would lead to decertification by um, World Rugby and USOPC because under the Ted Stevens Act, the NGB governs all, but it doesn't have to administer everything. Like it doesn't. Like this is, if you look at the soccer model, if you look at some of the other models, the reason why the soccer model works is because it's huge. And this is what I try to tell people is you, the model that USA Rugby has isn't necessarily the problem. It can be the, the people are part of the problem and you can replace people. But if you end up pulling everything out, then you end up sort of with the same result of, uh, of, of chapter seven, which is decertification and you would, and the people and all these subunits like it. So say chapter seven, this thing gets converted to chapter seven. What is the result on the sports side? That means all of the former subunits need to come together or some of the subunits need to come together, form an NGB, and then that NGB needs to establish itself as the primary governor of the sport. It doesn't have to administer the sport. I'm gonna like the the two different words that I'm using are are on purpose because people are complaining that USA rugby has squandered all this money and they've they've not invested back into the youth game. And here's the difference between us and, and the RFU is there's less than a hundred thousand people that play this game in this country actively that are members of the union. Um, if there were a million people playing, I don't think we'd have this problem because we'd have a lot more member revenue and we would also have a lot more sponsor revenue because of that greater number. Yeah. Because the, the value to reach those people would, would be greater. Um, but I, but I, I do want to say that that doesn't mean that, that, USA Rugby hasn't mismanaged its funds. No, 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 no. That, that's they, not to they say they, they still have. They yeah. still have. I'm just trying to exercise some points here. Is that the game in tier one countries specifically is huge from a revenue perspective. Uh, when England hosts a game at Twickenham, they make 10 million pounds. I think the only game in recent memory where USA Rugby made any money on the back end was the uh, was when we hosted the All Blacks. I think we made just a little bit when we hosted the Maori playing it at the soccer field or uh, at Toyota Field in in Chicago where the Chicago Fire play, but we didn't make any money on the game that we I guess subsequently sanctioned it, between the All Blacks and Ireland. We didn't make any money on that. Um, the only game where we made a good amount of money was USA playing the All Blacks. So the economics of running high performance here and of the game in general and internationally is so soul-crushing that the majority of Tier 2 rugby unions and below either live on the float, which is a lot of companies as we're seeing with uh, this uh, this um, you know pandemic, either live on the float or live in debt and just try to make it every time. So if we didn't have rim and all that stuff and we didn't host rugby world cup sevens, we would be like Canada, which is just struggling. Like they, right. they are living on the float, but so you end up, so, okay, get back to the legal stuff. So if there is no union, all of these subunits need to come together to form a union, need to figure out what that looks like. Then once they've established gov national governance over the game, 
um, it would need to apply to Rugby America's North to become a member of Rugby America's North. Then after it is certified by Rugby America's North, there is a process of which will it will take to apply for membership of World Rugby. And once they've been certified and they become a full member of World Rugby, uh, they can apply to the USOPC to become to get first certification and become the official governing body of the sport in the United States. And then you would get national programs back on the world stage. Other than outside of that, you're looking at, I'm just game planning. Let's say the rugby side of the stuff happens very fast and say, as soon as say this thing goes bankrupt, it dissolves and all of the people have been working the moment, say it goes into chapter seven, it gets converted to chapter seven and all the subunits begin organizing immediately to form a new union. The new union gets formed. They apply to rugby America's North and rugby America's North just as the pencil whip. And they're a member to become a member of world rugby. You're probably, and I'm guessing because world rugby wants the United States to be good and to be a factor because of the money that would, that comes with having events here and the exposure that comes with having events here. We're looking at at least a year of not being a fully certified rugby union on, from world rugby. And then probably at least another six months of not being certified by the USOPC. But I think like just, just by looking at this, we're looking at three, between two and three years, maybe four years before a new NGB would be certified by World Rugby and the USOPC, which would, <laughs> I, I know people are saying, hey, you know, uh, I, I don't need USA Rugby and all that stuff. I, I personally think that without an NGB, we would set the game back a lot. The, the convenient part is, MLR does exist. This means MLR will have to invest. MLR is already investing in, in the grassroots game. MLR probably has to invest more, which kind of sucks for them because they are trying to grow a commercial product. Um, and they're losing half their season. And, and we just lost two-thirds of a season. right? <laughs> um, so the, the, I, I say it's convenient because provided MLR still exists through this entire process – of getting a new NGB certified, our players will continuously get better, but they won't be playing it on a team for for years. I mean, would we miss World Cup qualifying by for the next World Cup? Yes, uh, we would. Like it would happen. Like there, there's there is no doubt in my mind that if we either we go through Chapter Seven and dissolves, or uh, or you just get decertified because all the subunits leave that we would fall out. Uh, well, there wouldn't be a team period. There is some talk of the USOPC taking over sevens, but I want to see that in writing because I don't see that happening basically without that in writing. I just don't see that happening. If there's no NGB, there's no reason to support a program. Um, there, there, there just isn't. Uh, and so if they don't, if the USOPC didn't take over that program, 
um, they would immediately probably, well, and this bankruptcy was converted to chapter seven and, and dissolved. I would bet that the, with the postponement of the Olympics, you would not see a U.S. rugby sevens men or women's program competing in the Olympics next year, straight up. Um, and then the ARC is still scheduled for August and September. And based on the, the, the whole point of chapter 11 is that for world rugby and for the USOPC, it is the best option to keep the NGB going and not have to go through a three to four year process of establishing and certifying a new national governing body, uh, which would then implement national programs. So the funding model, the fun, most of the funding packages from world rugby will be used to fund national programs because they're stripping down. They've stripped down the national office. Like it's, there's five people. I think there's, I think Ross Young is still there as CEO. I think there's a person that's running media because Twitter is working. And then I think the only the three other people that uh, have jobs right now are Mike Friday, Emily Bidwell, and uh, Chris Brown. Everyone else, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm pretty sure because I know that the, the systems administrator, the guy who runs the website and all the other backend stuff, he tweeted that he's no longer there. I know that Pete Steinberg has tweeted about it. His wife, um, who was the team services manager and did a lot of stuff for the national teams, uh, was furloughed or let go. Um, so everyone either, uh, as I understood it, had to take a 50% pay cut or leave. And the idea was from what I understand is USA rugby had slots for five FTEs, which is full-time equivalents. And so what, I guess it's sort of like a scholarship uh, in equivalencies. So some of these people are working part-time and if they're, if they're left, right. So they've stripped down the national office cause they can't afford to pay anyone. Um, and they will figure out uh the board and Congress are working again right now to like what the governance structure was look like. And then the lawyers are working on the bankruptcy and what the finance structure will look like um, to get through chapter 11. Yeah. So why don't we, so that's a good point. I think to, we talked about the entrance to chapter 11 essentially and the diploma. But why don't we spend a minute talking about what the process is going to look like going forward? Yep. So assuming the, the court accepts their petition for chapter 11, which I have no reason to believe they would not, um, what's going to happen is the claims will all be stayed. So no creditor will be get paid anything except what's in the approved dip budget, which will be things like their full-time employees will probably still get paid. Their advisors, their lawyers and stuff will, will get paid to work on the case. Everything else will be put on hold. And what's going to have to happen is just like similar to chapter seven, where you stack the claims, the, that, that claim priority will still apply in a chapter 11. And what's going to have to happen is that the debtor USA rugby is going to have to come up with a plan. Let's say, okay, when we exit chapter 11, this is where our exit financing is going to be. That, you know, it's probably going to be world rugby. Uh, but let's talk about that later, but wherever it is, the exit financing is going to be in place. And this is the claim everyone's going to get coming out. And it's going to be some reduced number of what they had going in. So, and 
typically the the lower you are on the stack, the lower your, your reinstated claim is going to be up down until zero. Now this is a nonprofit, so there's no equity. If there was equity, equity would likely get zero or very close to zero in any bankruptcy. Um, but, but let's just make up some creditor groups for the sake of argument here. So you have the banks, you have the credit card banks, you have World Rugby, and you have what's called their unsecured creditors, which is everybody else. Their contingent liabilities, their vendors, whatever. Um, what's probably going to happen is the, the debtor is going to propose a plan that says, hey, look, we can only afford to, fu- to fund this much debt going forward. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay the banks in full. They're our senior lender. And we're going to pay you know, our credit cards 90%. And we're going to pay our unsecured claims 50%. And with the financing we've arranged, that will be enough for us to go forward and survive as a healthy, as a healthy organization. So you guys are going to accept 50% of your claim back. And you guys are going to accept 90% or whatever. And the different creditor classes will have to vote if they accept that plan or not. And in almost every chapter 11, ultimately, there's a plan that's accepted by every class. Because uh, first of all, if you're unimpaired, like if you're the banks and you're getting your full claim back, you don't get a vote. You're just deemed to accept. If you are impaired, you get a vote. But um, there are certain thresholds by which the court can what they call cram down a plan I mean, they can they can force a dissenting class to accept a plan if certain vote thresholds are met and invariably what will happen is the, the next most the most senior impaired class will get whatever they want uh if the descending classes don't agree to the plan and then the most senior class will cram down the rest so because the rest of the people want something back they're going to agree to a plan and the most the most senior impaired class is going to agree to give them something just to make the bankruptcy go quicker. They don't want to have to battle for months with legal expenses and whatnot to you know extract that little extra bit from the junior creditors. So the junior creditors will get some holdup value. Say, hey, look, just pay me to go along with this plan and give me something, and I won't object. And so what will likely happen is the debtor will submit some plan. There'll be some negotiating back and forth. There'll be arguments. There may be some testimony. And ultimately, the classes will vote. And in 90% of cases or more, maybe, they eventually reach a consensual plan where every class agrees. The judge waves his magic wand. And if you went in with a million-dollar claim, you may come out with a $250,000 claim. But what it will have to do is meet the judge's test where he's going to look at the, the claims were prepared, uh, are being proposed to go forward. He's going to look at the financing that's being lined up wherever that is. And he's going to look at the revenues and expenses of the company. And he has to be convinced that whatever this plan is saying, it's viable financially. And what that means is you won't get, you won't get something that's predatory towards the debtor. They, the debtor is the most protected in this case. You won't get something where a reasonable person is going to think that there's not enough money to go forward. Um, you, you'll you'll be fairly you can be fairly confident. No one can predict the future perfectly. There could be another pandemic or whatever. But you know a, a reasonable assessment of the prospects of the company will have to be met uh, that the company can be viable going forward. And if that can happen, then again at that point the judge snaps his fingers and converts it to a chapter seven. Um, so 
filing bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean you will exit chapter 11 successfully. It means you have a chance now to reorganize under chapter 11, but if they can't line up the financing or they can't agree to a plan, even with their most senior creditors and they can't get the thresholds for a cram down, then again, the judge will eventually declare the plan, you know, chapter 11 unfeasible and it will be converted to a chapter seven and liquidate. Yeah. I, I just, I look at this and for me, uh, it doesn't get, uh, it, you know, I, I think the, on the sports side, the, the, for me, the most practical thing for rugby in America is to go through is to go through this process and maintain an NGB that is certified to govern the game by the USOBC and World Rugby. Um, there was talk with in the USA Gymnastics bankruptcy uh, case filing is like okay is is US is the USOPC going to decertify USA Gymnastics and the, the reality was is no because the USOPC took over because the Ted Stevens Act allows the USOPC that power. Um, it doesn't, and people, and this is what people don't understand is world rugby has the power to loan money, has the power to, you know, put some terms and conditions to on, on the union, but it doesn't have the power to completely dictate how this thing gets run. It does not control or have the ability to take over uh, the organization. When and Kevin Roberts was to force USA Rugby to accept anything, I mean, they yeah. can't take this loan and take these terms. If USA Rugby wanted to say no, we're not interested, they, you know, World Rugby yeah. have no ability to force that on um, the debtor. I think one of the beauties of Chapter Eleven as a as a format or as a forum for this type of conflict is it brings out the most economically efficient solution. If there's a if there's someone out, you know, if USA Rugby, for example, is being taken advantage of by World Rugby, and really they have this great value, and World Rugby is somehow stealing that value, the court will not allow that to happen. They'll say, no, 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 these terms are not fair. There's a better, there'll be better offers out there, and they'll force an auction where other lenders or other investors will come in, and if you know if there's better terms out there, the court will find them, and they will not let World Rugby put in terms that are somehow you know overly favorable to world rugby the only way of a financing gets through chapter 11 is if it's the best financing available to the company so this is going to be a perfect you know there's a lot of dispute out there if you know the role of world rugby and all this and are they to blame and are they acting uh with bad intent towards usa rugby i mean you could argue what blame means but certainly they will not be allowed in my view be allowed to act with bad intent towards USA rugby in this case. And if they have been acting with bad intent all along, it'll become very apparent because you'll see other actors enter the chapter 11 and say, Hey, I'll give you a fair deal. And if, if there's a better fair deal out there, it'll come in. And if you see no one come in, which I have a very, very strong suspicion that no one is coming in, but world rugby to finance USA rugby, you'll know that these are the best and only terms that are available to USA rugby. And like any lender or any investor in any format, anywhere in the world, when you invest, that investment comes with terms at the very least, it comes with the interest payments, repayment terms, co- you know, maintenance covenant, things like that. Often it comes with, uh, management governance type terms like board seats or, um, you know, independent board requirements, or th- there's very often a governance element to any investment. 
And just because government governance elements exist doesn't make something predatory. It makes it common investment practice. The way you would know it's predatory is if they're somehow holding out better offers from other people, or if they were forcing USA Rugby to do things against their will. And this court will prove that neither of those, and my, my suspicion, we'll see what happens. I predict this court will will bear out that there's no better offers and that USA Rugby is not being forced to do anything against their will. Yeah, I, I don't think World Rugby has, like, the, the previous terms alone, when they gave us, a, I would say, when they when they floated us the loan to cover and underwrite the expenses of Rugby World Cup 7s is we didn't take out enough money. Like, we could have taken out a lot more money from them and knowing like if we had done the the good due diligence on what where we were going to be and where we were going to sh- be short because we knew we would probably be short the next year too we would have taken out like 10 million dollars and, and guess i mean i talked to like finance other finance people about this is like so area like uh the cost of capital so the the it was zero interest Zero yeah. percent interest on that loan. If that's true, obviously it doesn't get any more company friendly than that. So I mean, there the the I think the 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 loan proposal that was floated was like beyond for to to cover creditors. Which I think the idea was if we can get to summer, and the the original idea was if we can get to summer financially, we're not going to try and go into bankruptcy. We're going to just float a loan that would pay your creditors, but um, this this whole situation completely accelerated the reorganization process and forced the hand. Uh, like bankruptcy was already on, like it was on the table. Like that's the whole point of like this reorganization process that started, I want to say end of November, early December. That And I, I know that stuff's not out there for everyone, but it, it started early November, end of December, um, and has been ongoing. And this is just the, the I, not the end state, because we aren't at the end state, but the, the result of that reorganization process and a, you know, a pandemic that w- they had identified, they, they made some cuts and they had enough money to get to May and they were trying to figure out how to get to June, which would have seen grants and from the USOPC and world rugby come in, which would have alleviated some revenue issues. And then we would have continued the reorganization process of the NGB. And we would have gotten not just, we would have gotten the loan package that was going to be smaller than what will cost to get through bankruptcy of course but it we would have been able to get through this because we're again but we'd still be in the same sort of state of living on the float for a while and but we wouldn't end up with a ngb in in bankruptcy uh but so for the most part world rugby has you know in fact i think the the term you put it uh i think you it's like I would say USA rugby has been an indigent child that always comes back to mommy and daddy for money and right. mommy and daddy have continuously given USA rugby money um, for their problems. Like we, we have taken this money and not fixed ourselves. 
Right. That's that seems to be what is actually going on. Um, Nigel Melville, as some folks have said, was appointed by World Rugby, but he wasn't. He there were two people applying for this was back in way 2006 when we had gone through another reorganization that was almost just as bad because we couldn't figure out how to run USA Sevens, uh, and we lost a bunch of money and fired the pre- fired the I guess executive director. We were going to hire a new executive director. Nigel Melville was going to be uh, the director of high performance. And yes, it was going to be funded by World Rugby because that's what they do. They fund high-performance directors and coaches. But he went through an application process. He was – there was another guy named John Kerwin who went back to coaching. Um, He ended – I think his last job was with the Blues in Auckland uh, who who had applied for the executive director position. And I guess he had done his due diligence and said – you know what? No thanks. Nigel Melville went to this party with the board um, um, and somehow emerged the next day as chief executive officer and high performance director. Um, I think for the most part, I don't think he was a good, like when it comes to the finances, we continued to live on the float during that entire period of time. And then they came up with the idea to have rim. Yeah. So that and that that is where we're at now. So, what is what is next for the union? Um, hopefully, uh, the the workout plan gets approved, and hopefully, the sub units that are a part of this union don't just you know secede and create a rugby civil war, uh, which would in which would force decertification of the union and we would lose national programs until it got recertified or a new union would be certified. And, you know, that's just, that's just how it works. So I I don't, a chapter seven would be bad. All the subunits seceding from the union after chapter 11 would also be bad. Both would set the game back quite a bit. That is my opinion. And, and you know you, you'll see that this. I'm, I'm sure this will play out when they figure out the exit viability is whether or not USA Rugby can count on the revenues of the geographic you know member unions right now. I'm sure that if there are people that are objecting to the plan, you know they're going to say no, you can't. You won't be able to count on them or whatever. What, sometimes the the directions get confusing based on how the plan goes, but I can see there being conflict or whether or not you can count on that financing. And it's very possible a judge would say, you know, I'm not going to assume that these members stay when they're all publicly talking about leaving, which would make the exit financing burden for a lender like world rugby even higher. Um, so I think, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm not an expert on the details of qualification, you know, from a legal standpoint or certification of NGB, but you know, assuming those things are are required uh, for us to qualify. You know, if you care about the national teams playing and competing in in world rugby events, um, let's hope that world rugby stays at the table if no one else will come to fund us through this and through what will be a costly chapter eleven, no doubt, and through the possibility of the member unions leaving, which I think is a real possibility. Because if they don't, we may be forced to liquidate. You know, whatever our intentions are. And then deal with the consequences of that. Yeah. So, like I like I said earlier, if if this thing gets converted to Chapter Seven for whatever reason, the member unions of 
USA Rugby will have to come together to reform a new NGB. What that looks like, how the, the administration of the game looks, and how the governance looks, that will be up to, you know, I guess uh, the I got names, I won't name them, but all those folks uh, that are involved. Um, and you know who you are, right? Uh, it will be up to you to come together to just like they did in 1976 and form the United States of America Rugby Football Union again. And that we have a club, club all-star team entered in the next World Cup. Yeah, so um, so that's uh, us for special edition of Earful of Dirt. Uh, we'll be back with some more content later uh, with not having um, MLR really – not having any rugby actually hurts this whole idea because we had like 20 weeks of rugby Monday nights planned. Um, so uh, when it comes to COVID-19, uh, take care of yourselves. Wash your hands. All right. I'm Aaron Castro. That's Greg Gradelli. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Earful of Dirt, the Major League Rugby Podcast. Connect with your hosts throughout the week on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Earful of Dirt. Or email your thoughts and questions to earfulofdirt at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in next week. Until then, get out there and enjoy some rugby.